From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podcast. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the season finale of The Podvocate. The entire Podvocate board is here today in the studio, as we do for every season finale, to discuss a pressing issue that affects our community and offer our informed, though inexpert, opinions. On this season's finale, we're discussing what diversity means to each of us. 2020 has been a year of reckoning in America, none more so than the issue of racial inequity. Many Americans confronted their ignorance of the way police treat people of color. We watched as the COVID-19 death toll among minorities accelerated faster than whites. These unavoidable images hit home. They reminded many white Americans of their privilege and disconnect. In the wake of the George Floyd protests, companies, organizations, schools, and other institutions responded by pledging to do more and that more often focused on diversity. But what does diversity mean? There is no legal definition of the term, nor even a ubiquitous one. We're all making this up as we go along. So today we're going to discuss what diversity means to each of us and what it might look like at work, at school, and in one's social circle. We are a diverse board. We are members of many communities, black, white, Asian, straight, gay, veteran, immigrant, religious, married, single, parents, and so many more. This is not going to be an easy conversation. It is sure to be uncomfortable, but it will be honest, nuanced, and sincere. You are sure to disagree with some of the things we share. We are sure to not agree amongst ourselves. We hope this conversation spurs you to think about what diversity means to you and how you embrace and pursue diversity in your life. With that, we'll dive in. I am the editor-in-chief here at The Podvocate. I am Matt Doran. I am 36. I am a straight white male. I grew up in New York. Uh, I am a parent and I am married. Uh, I think those are about all the groups that I identify with. I'm sure there are others, but none come to mind immediately. Yeah, uh, my name is Radhika Sutherland. I am a woman of color in my 30s. I identify as Indian American. One of my biggest identities is the daughter of immigrants, first generation. I am able-bodied, cisgendered. I am married to a man, so pretty heteronormative in that way. Yeah, I'm sure there are others. I'm intersectional, like we all are, and it's impossible to name all of my identifiers, but those are the big ones. My name is Emmett Harrington. I'm a 2L. I'm a straight white male, and I'm probably the most local member of the Pobbicate. I grew up in a town called Glencoe, which is the last town on the north side of the county. Uh, If you've seen any John Hughes movies, you've probably seen Glencoe. I'd also say I'm Catholic. I'm in my 18th year of Catholic education at Loyola Law. So that's me. Peace, everyone. This is Olivia. I grew up between Seattle, Washington, and a suburb in Illinois called Aurora. And those are two very different places. You have like the liberal willy-nilly of uh the Pacific Northwest and the very, and, and I grew up in a very like Christian household in my time in Aurora. Um, so I'm super excited to have this conversation. Um, I identify as a black queer woman, um, a mystic, 
uh, able-bodied cisgender person. There, yeah, are so many things about me that I think we'll kind of get into as, you know, more things will come up as we talk about it. Um, and so that's a little bit about me. Everybody, my name is Lenny Reinhardt. I'm a married, straight, white, Catholic male. I provide a veteran's perspective to the group. And in my childhood, I was raised on a little farm in rural Michigan. Nice to be re-meeting you all. My name is Leanne Jossend. I am a second year at Loyola. I am adopted, Chinese, and a member of the LGBT community, but also critically religious. So it's interesting trying to square those circles in my life. And I think that's all of us. Very cool. Well, I, I hope that our identifying ourselves um, demonstrates that without having yet defined diversity and what that means to each of us and perhaps in an abstract sense, which we'll get into in a second. But I think objectively, I think the six of us are pretty darn diverse. And, and with that, I guess I'll share what my definition is of diversity. I think, you know, as aspiring attorneys, we can't discuss something without knowing the contours of the subject matter. And so, um, you know, it's incumbent upon us to try and shape this and for me, diversity is, I don't want to be reductive or oversimplified, but for me, diversity is background, experiences, and perspectives. And that can be from anybody. And that, you know, that blurs all lines for me. So in theory, for me, there could be a room of straight white people yet still be diverse because they are so many more things in that there are so many intersections of their perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences that make them diverse. Uh, so I, I look for those three things. I do believe that with your, your quote, typical um, diverse metrics, that those things then inherently do expand, that you do get uh, different backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives, um, and that the less of those um, typical stand metrics that are met the narrower the bat the background experiences and perspectives uh, but those are the things that I look for and try and embrace in my life a quick aside I've, I try occasionally to read more uh, I tend to lean progressive but I try and read more conservative things here and there to, to try and understand them I think this year in particular has shown a light on how overly simplistic certain political arguments and, and social and economic arguments can be rather than nuanced. It's hard for someone like me to find nuance uh, in things and reading and in popular culture. Um, those, but anyway, that's how I define diversity for me. I would say my personal de definition of diversity um, definitely includes intersectionality and heterogeneity. And what I mean by intersectionality is not just diversity amongst individuals, but diversity within individuals and heterogeneity. This is where I might disagree with you, Matt, a little bit. I don't think that in my definition of diversity, I could walk into a room full of straight white men and still feel it was a diverse room. I feel my, my definition of diversity includes um, includes a physical aspect, includes being able to look at a group of people and seeing, um, I hate to say different types of people, but someone that 
represents a group. Um, and again, diversity is so personal in that it involves identities and no one can provide those identities besides the individual. So I see what you're saying. And I agree that even a, even a group of straight white people have different identities like Lenny for, okay. So for example, just using our board, Matt, Emmett and Lenny all identified as white men, straight white men, I think even specifically. Um, but Lenny identifies as a veteran and Matt is clearly from his accent, a New Yorker. Um, so there is, there is variance there, but when I look at this picture of the six of us, the diversity comes in with me and Olivia and Leanne, um, because for me, diversity does include a physical aspect, whether that's um, an ability level or uh, like a gender presentation or um, race, most critically, in my opinion. So I'll, I'll ask a question though, when in this, hypothetical room of straight white men that you walk into uh, and and that's like all men yeah. all rooms in America. yeah I was gonna say um, hypothetical not, so, not hypothetical. so hypothetical <laughs> if you were to walk into a room of, of and there weren't from your from your perspective it lacks diversity do you think that you would still be open-minded about what the people had to say or because for you this room didn't meet your definition of diversity you would listen, but perhaps not um, find those perspectives credible. Okay, I will say, I didn't mention this in my intro, but I grew up in Kentucky. So I was often the only brown person at the very least, and many times the only brown woman, because I um, was really involved in a lot of different things that people of my ilk were not typically involved in. Um, I will say I'm always open-minded and that's probably my training as a therapist. I, I have literal formal training on being open-minded, but I will always have my guard up in a room full of white people. And that's just very honest. I will be careful, but I will be open-minded. What about you, Emmett? What does diversity mean to you? So the, the simplest definition I found was probably the, the most, uh, the one that stood out to me the most. It was from a UNC survey and it said, diversity is a group of things that are different in the same place. So there's kind of an irony with the diversity. You need to have like a shared location or commonality in order to analyze the different traits. Um, so subsumed into that definition is whatever the differences may be, they're nonetheless together. And that's not to say that people who are diverse have to sing and hold hands, but they're nevertheless together and acknowledging one another. Um, so I think that's the fundamental argument for diversity, especially diversity in clubs and in the workplace. Uh, it's the counter to homogeny. And if ignorance and hate is born from the fear of otherness, diversity is the remedy for that. Yeah, that's good. When I think about diversity, I can't help but thinking about the reasons why we kind of have these conversations in the first place, why we're talking about diversity. And for me, that's very much because of the pervasiveness of white supremacy. And so yes, diversity means difference um, in all the different ways like folks have talked about, but I actually think what I mean by diversity is restructuring with an, in, with an intention, the way that we are and the things and how we do things 
um, with an intention that really deconstructs whiteness. So I don't think we can ever arrive at, for me, there's no definition or practice or diversifying of anything if it's not deconstructing whiteness, because it's very much like situated in this political moment of our society, right? It's not like we're just diversifying to diversify. It has all of these roots and connotations that are really about how are we deconstructing whiteness? So for me, that plays a big role in how I think about diversity. Um, and definitely that can manifest in different ways, but if we're not deconstructing whiteness at the core, then for me, we haven't actually diversified or we're not actively diversifying, which I think is something, it's more of a journey in the first place. It's, never, it's not something that we will arrive at, um, but that's kind of what I'm thinking about in, in, uh, in terms of what is diversity for me at this point. So I'm going to push back a little bit on what Radhika said as far as you have to have some sort of um, diversity and skin tone or race in order to have a diverse group. And I say that because as somebody that grew up in a very um, Catholic or Christian area of Michigan, um, and even during my military time, one group that I never really encountered at all were Jewish folks. And so then when I come to law school, um, there are, a, you know, a, quite a number of Jews that are in our classes that we have classes with every day. And to me, that represents not racial diversity, but religious diversity. And those are, that's still diversity. I agree that, you know, there is different subsets of racial diversity, religious diversity, you know, diversity as far as sexual orientation. But when you focus on only one branch of that diversity, I think that does a disservice to all the other broad spectrum diversity groups that there are. And one thing that when I was thinking about this question, I think that we need to also consider the difference between diversity as opposed to equal opportunity, um, because I think those two concepts often get conflated. And I think that as people discuss, you know, having a diverse group, I think we also need to consider what are the barriers of those other groups. So I think following up on what both um, Lenny and Matt and Radhika have brought up specifically, I think we could expand the definition of diversity to include things like diversity and treatment of you by other people or because that that includes religious diversity, that includes racial diversity, that includes both how like diversity of opinions and perspectives and identities, but also diversity in the world as you are presenting to other people. And that doesn't necessarily have to include racial diversity, but it certainly does. Um, and I think that's a good way to approach things because it diversity does not exist like in, like it exists within you, but it also, is an objective thing that like exists in the world to some degree. And so that's how I also view diversity is diversity in treatment um, by others. I also think uh, when I think of diversity, I think of us moving away from the, the idea of the great American melting pot, you know, that everybody has to meld together to create this one thing. And instead, um, even in, when I was in high school, we talked about like a mosaic 
or like a stained glass window where everybody is their individual unique parts, but we come together to create an also beautiful, bigger picture. So I think that that's a great idea. To, that's kind of my definition of diversity is not really a definition, but I guess an image. So I always think of, you know, the image of the mosaic of the United States and the image of the like stained glass window. And I think that diversity is really just about, I guess, at its core from a scientist perspective, variance and variance in different and unique ways. Because I think everybody is diverse because everybody is different, but I think it's also like a sliding scale, you know, like a group of white men can be diverse in their perspectives, backgrounds, identities. Um, but, you know, you move a little bit further and you have a group of the same white men who have diverse opinions. And then you move to, you include women, you include people of color, you include Asian people, black people, Hispanic people. And all of a sudden that diversity meter keeps going. So I think that diversity can exist on this spectrum. It sounds like we have a really diverse opinion of what diversity is. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I just want to say one thing um, in response to Lenny. I agree with you that, of course, diversity exists within a physically homogeneous group. I absolutely agree with you. I was just speaking from my personal perspective that if I walked into a room full of white men, I would not feel like diversity was present just based on my life experience. Um, and then one more thing, I uh, had a similar experience because I also grew up in a rural area with not really knowing any Jewish people until I went to college. Um, and I just want to add that I know uh, Judaism is a religion and Jewish is also a cultural identifier. Um, I think culture is a huge source of diversity um, and that's where I feel it the most, like going to cultural festivals or getting to experience someone's culture and hearing their music and tasting their foods and seeing their clothes. That's where I feel the most diversity. Um, and I think that's that's maybe one thing that's lacking in what you can call the American culture. You know, it's just such a mishmash of other cultures. And I, um, I just want to acknowledge quickly that Jewishness is a religion as well as a culture. So I definitely, I definitely see what you're saying, Lenny, and I agree, but my perspective is a little different. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, to Olivia's point about how it's a never ending process, this pursuit of diversity, I think that that ties a lot of what we've all talked about together that, you know, Radhika is on her own journey of experiences of diversity. Um, as we all are. And so, you know, I guarantee, you know, if I asked Radhika this question 15 years from now, after having been away from Kentucky for a longer period of time, that her answer might be maybe not completely different, but more nuanced and more nuanced to the point where when she's 80 years old, then it is completely different. And, and I think that that speaks well to uh, Olivia's point and that it is a journey and that they had and that it evolves through these kinds of conversations you know if if these kinds of conversations are shut down you won't know that you know i was bullied as a kid and so i tend to be more sensitive i i lived abroad i lived in china and japan and so i actually have a very microscopic but still some experience of what it feels like to be an other 
uh, which I imagine most people uh, of my pigmently challenged complexion have not experienced. Uh, and so that does give me a different perspective. And so these conversations are, are so critical. Now that we have uh, not a, certainly not a singular definition, but we've been, we've been able to articulate what diversity means to each of us and, and demonstrate that there are commonalities across our perspectives. I wanna talk about uh, diversity at an institutional level, which um, at least for this conversation, let's keep that to the education sphere, you know, the higher education sphere, uh, and which is well, where we all are, um, and the workforce. I could not find, and I did a pretty hefty amount of research, I could not find a single institution that defined what diversity was. Um, so many discussed um, the importance of diversity at their particular institution, but never actually said, this is what it means to us. Um, you know, Facebook said it is, quote, hiring people with different backgrounds and experiences. Uh, Wesleyan, which is often cited or perhaps even pilloried as a, a liberal uh, institution in the country, says diversity is a, quote, mix of cultures, ethnicities, religions, socioeconomic backgrounds, ages, sexual orientations, gender identity, range of abilities, national origin, education, financial means, edu oh, I said that, I said education twice, uh, political perspectives, and life experiences. That is certainly a broad list, um, which I think strikes at, you know, the heart of what each of us have touched on. Um, the largest law firm in the country or world, sorry, Denton's has a very similar list. Um, the Gates Foundation has a shorter list saying diversity is quote, race, ethnicity, gender, age, cultures, and beliefs. Uh, I also went looking at the Minneapolis City Council, uh, which attracted national headlines uh, after it voted this past summer to dissolve its police department and establish a new one with racial justice and equity in mind, I thought that they might have some kind of statement on diversity, um, which I did not find in any other municipality. They did not provide a definition of diversity, although they did enact an ordinance to increase diversity in city government uh, and among city contractors. Although I found it strange that these are a bunch of lawyers uh, writing this and they didn't put a definition of what it actually is. So that was a little strange, but. Um, and I know, Radhika, you did some research, research too, into diversity within the legal field, which is, of course, you know, the most germane for us. Yeah, germane for us and germane for society. <laughs> I really believe and I, I think that what I will share with you guys here um, will support my belief that the lack of diversity in the legal field is a big contributor to systemic racism. We know that a lot of our laws and the constitution were written in the light of white supremacy and to bolster white supremacy, like Olivia said. Um, and I think that that has perpetuated hundreds of years later because the field has not diversified the way it should. So there's no reason for the people who are currently running the system to change the system because it works for them. Um, so I'm going to read some statistics, and it's going to be a lot of numbers coming at you. I'll try to go slow and steady. Um, I, I normally wouldn't do this over a podcast, but I think this is really important and enlightening and disturbing. So there are currently 1.3 million people 
who are actively practicing law in this country right now. Of those, 86% of all lawyers are white. 86%. of those 1.3 million active lawyers and identify as women. 37%. And um, let me just say, these are all coming from the American Bar Association 2020 diversity profile. So these are recent statistics as of January 1, 2020. Only 37% of lawyers identify as women. 5% of all lawyers are Black, although 13.4% of the United States population is Black. 5% of all lawyers are Hispanic, although 18.5% of the American population identifies as Hispanic. 2% of all lawyers are Asian, although 6% of the American population is Asian. So those stats I just read, 37% women, 5% Black, 5% Hispanic, and 2% Asian, those are all slight increases in the last 10 years. Um, now we're getting into the more disturbing statistics. Only 0.4% of all lawyers are indigenous individuals, Native American and indigenous people, 0.4%, less than half a percent. Um, and this is down from 0.7% in 2010. So it decreased by three tenths of a percentage point in 10 years. Um, and sadly, this is very reflective of the indigenous population of the United States. The population is decreasing. We know that the indigenous community has been ravaged by COVID and by suicide and addiction. Um, so only 0.4% of lawyers in America are indigenous. 3% identify as LGBT, and only 1% of lawyers in America identify as having a disability. And we know those are extremely disproportionate values to the population in the United States. Um, so those are just all overall lawyers. I'm just gonna say a little bit more um, because I wanna talk about leadership and firms. I think it doesn't matter if you have a bunch of women unless those women are gonna be represented as equity partners in a firm. So only 21% of equity partners in uh, firms in America are women and only 10% of all equity partners in America are people of color. And that's all people of color. Um, and then the judiciary is the last area I wanna discuss because judges are so um, important and what the, the, the decisions judges make are so critical as to what's happening with our criminal justice system overall. So 80% of judges are white. And the percentage of black judges has dropped. It's only 9.8% in 2020. It was actually higher in 2010. And the, on, if we're talking high courts, so like Supreme Courts of all the states, only 8 are men of color and 7% are, are women of color when 19% of our American population is men of color and 20% of our population is women of color. So I know, like I said, that's a lot of numbers. I threw a lot of numbers at you, but I hope the takeaway is that it's abysmal representation. And it is my personal belief that th these numbers are why our system is so broken. And I don't think that we will have a less systemically racist criminal justice apparatus in this country until 
there's more equity in the population versus minority representation in the legal field. And I just want to say, I feel like that goes back to some of our earlier conversation about how we're defining diversity, because I'm sure all of those 86% of white people have a diversity of experiences, right? Grew up in different places, some are parents, some may be queer, some have disabilities, you name it. However, the result has been what it has been. We have continued to perpetuate white supremacy. And so that's why I have to go back to when I think about diversity and why it is important in this moment, it's because we're trying to deconstruct whiteness. And so if we don't move towards that in our definition or pursuit for diversity, then it's almost pointless. Yeah, I, I think those are both great points. And I can only hope that, I don't, you know, I, I won't speak for everyone else, but when I, well, maybe not now over Zoom, but when I was in the classroom at Loyola and looking around, it, it, it wasn't perfect, but at least on the gender um, diversity scale, it seemed pretty equitable. Uh, I think there are still improvements to be made as far as people of color. Uh, but it, it looked promising is at least from, from my angle, it, it looked like we were working, we were going to be graduating a crop of lawyers who would help improve those, uh, numbers. Yeah. I want to comment about Loyola law specifically. Um, I spent a lot of time starting this summer, um, working with faculty and administration, and other students towards a more, diverse student body at the law school. Um, so we learned a lot about the statistics and I will say for the last few years, there's been a greater, there are more than 50% women at the law school. So if we're looking at current law school enrollment, I think that 37% will increase um, steadily over time because it looks like there are more women enrolling in law school right now. Um, but I, I cannot, I cannot say that Loyola is a diverse law school in um, a racial sense at all. I think that it's, um, and that's not just Loyola. I think that's many, many law schools, most law schools probably. I think that uh, actually black enrollment was down in 2020 from 2019 um, at our law school at least. And I think that's a trend nationally. And um, so yes, while, uh, women are definitely enrolling more in law school. I think there, we have leaps and bounds as far as black enrollment um, specifically. I, I appreciate you, you sharing that, Radhika, and, and the research that went into that. And I, you know, you're able to, to call all of that because the American Bar Association, as you said, pooled all of that information and then publicized it. And some t uh, companies, particularly tech companies, release um, annual diversity and inclusion reports. And so, you know, a company like Facebook will be able to do a similar report among uh, all of its employees. Schools uh, offer the similar statistics on their student body. Do we all think that this is something that should be mandated? You know, should it be of companies of a certain size or schools of a certain size? You know, if you've got a, your local hardware store that's got five people, you know, maybe that's too much or, or unrealistic, but what do we think about that? What do we think about the idea that an, an institution should publicize um, 
its diversity metrics. No, I see that sort of like a double-edged sword because while it's good to like go out there and say, hey, look, this is what our, our diversity is. I think that if there is somebody that falls into one of those minority categories, if they look at those statistics and they say, well, that, that's not very diverse, um, I think that they would be less inclined to go to that. We'll just stick with colleges. They'll be less inclined to go to that institution. So I think, uh, I think that there should be some sort of incentive on both sides to make these areas more diverse because like we talked about, um, you get better conversations if the people involved have different backgrounds. So if there was a way to, I guess, put this in a more, a welcoming, like, so if you publish your diversity statistics and they are in one metric or another unsuitable, they need to have a way to present them in a way that, hey, we're trying to bring more of these populations into our school to make it more diverse, if that makes sense. Olivia, did you, did, you, did you want to add anything? Oh, yeah. I think it makes sense to publish your diversity statistics, particularly because it requires you to think about it at the very least. Um, it requires you to be held accountable, which I think is extremely important as we're talking about moving towards a more diverse and, and, and equitable institutions. I also think... Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. It requires you to be held accountable. It requires you to answer to folks. Um, and I think that's a particularly important. And to what Lenny was saying, I think I agree with Olivia, accountability is the biggest reason that I think it should be mandated. I think that every organization above a certain number should be required to publish those. And to what Lenny was saying, I think that just publishing, taking a survey and then publishing, you can't stop there. It's got to come with changed hiring practices, changed recruitment practices. Um, if you realize that, oh, my, my company is 95% white and that's going to deter people of color from applying, then you have to make a concerted effort. Those statistics have to contribute to action, you know, not just publishing statistics. In a changing culture, it has to contribute to a changing culture that is visible, authentic, and intentional. Um, it requires actual relationship. It also requires white people ceding power, which I think is very difficult. Um, I know I've been on boards where they're having conversations about particular, you know, organizations who are only funding organizations who have a certain amount of, of diversity on their board. And sometimes these can be very specific numbers, et cetera, and they want narratives, et cetera, around it. And people are, are feeling offended. They're like, but we're diverse. We have white women. We have white men. We have white people who, like, you know, like we said, who white people who have all these different diversity of experiences. Um, and it creates this fear that like, if I have to let go, then I don't want to, I don't want to diversify in the way that it's being required or asked of me. And I think that is going to require some serious reckoning that diversity and in institution means white folks have to cede power. And that looks, you know, a myriad of different ways. Um, but that has to be a part of the conversation, I, I think, as well. 
I think that was what I was getting at is there has to be some sort of incentive. Like once they publish these statistics, then, then what, like there has to be a way to then make that either. And I'm not sure if, you know, quote unquote legislation is the way to go, but either, um, you know, as consumers making choices or as people that are trying to seek these services, making choices, um, that's just that there has to be more on top of it. Yeah. I, when I, first thought about it. Um, I thought about it in the context because I don't know if anyone saw this, but NASDAQ, um, they submitted a diversity requirement to the SEC um, for the publicly traded companies that are listed on its exchange. And um, they want to require, quote, listed companies to have at least one woman on their boards, in addition to a director who is a racial minority or one who self-identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Now, there are 3,000 companies currently on NASDAQ that don't meet that standard um, that would be, and, then, and that they would then be required to justify their decision uh, to not be in compliance in order to remain uh, listed on the exchange. And I think that talks about um, accountability that we, you know, we've, we've touched on, but it also triggers some enforcement mechanism. And that's only possible because it has this, you know, the NASDAQ plays this kind of gatekeeper role. Um, and I, you know, I think as soon as you actually mandate something, you've got to start talking about enforcement and actual accountability. And when I first thought about this in the context of NASDAQ, I thought, well, it's probably best left to a market-based decision. I think, you know, to Olivia's point, if you just publish and do nothing, like, well, now what? Um, and I think, but I think it's, it's possible that there could be just a simple market response. If, you know, Facebook published, let's just say bad numbers and didn't follow up with a statement of, and here's how we're going to address this deficiency. Well, then people might say, ah, eh, you know, maybe I'll go either. Well, there is no competitor. <laughs> you get the idea that you might find something else for your social media needs. But I, you know, it, it, this, I think this is challenging. You know, if let's say you are a Utah, lar a large organization in Utah. Uh, I just bought new glasses from a company called uh, Lingo that's based in Utah. They probably don't have great diversity. Um, because it's Utah, you know, do we, do we um, penalize them? Because like, you know, you know, if you're choosing from among your local pool of talent and you've only got, uh, you know, a white population, you know, is that a company's fault? You know, how do you, that, that, that does, you know, you're not gonna just ship people of color or ship a diverse group of people into your company just so that you can, you know, be able to do that. That's, I think that goes to Radica's. I think that goes to Radica's point, though, because their recruitment. I mean, think of you know organizations that recruit nationally. If you go out and yep. recruit somebody or get a headhunter to go find somebody that fits your company's mission statement and offer to move them to Utah and set them up in you know good neighborhood or whatever, why why can't a, a big organization? They should be able to facilitate that. If yeah, yeah, I think you're right. If you have the money, I, I think that's absolutely right. So I also, when we talk about mandates, I, I've also seen many examples where it backfires or is ineffective. So like Olivia and Lenny were both saying without the intentionality and the culture change, it means nothing. So one example I'm thinking of is the NFL, which I, I believe, and sorry if this term offends people, but I think it's like a slave owner organization because almost every team is owned by, actually, I think only one team is not owned by a white man. And that's the 
uh, Jacksonville, maybe, and it's owned by an Arab American man. And I'm doing all of this from off the dome. So if I'm wrong, then please correct me. But I think the NFL has a rule where um, if they are looking for a new head coach, at least one application they review has to be from a a non-white man. Um, I think that's the rule. And I may be totally botching this because I'm, again, it is. Radhika, it's called the Rooney rule. It's one of the owners. I think he's the owner of the Steelers. Yeah. That rule. So, um, so that rule exists and I think it's existed for a while, but despite the existence of that rule, I think the NFL has continuously been one of the more insidiously racist organizations that dominates American culture. Um, Obviously Colin Kaepernick is the face of the ugliness and racism of the NFL. So even though this Rooney rule has existed for so long, I I don't think it's done very much to change the NFL the way we see it because there is no cultural change. And simultaneously, while while the Rooney rule exists, the um, Army, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is the biggest sponsor of the NFL. So it's literally sponsored by the military, which um, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation about that's why, you know, the, the, the national anthem was never done at every single game until the Army became a sponsor of the NFL. And then we ostracized a black quarterback. Um, but the Rooney rule exists. So we're still doing something to change it, right? That actually brings up a point that I wanted to touch on in this context. Very, very similar. The NFL is extremely popular. And so when we talk about at least marketplace or market-based accountability, and you are looking at an organization or you know, a business or a school, and you, and you look at it and say, that, I'm sorry, you're not, you're not doing enough. Your diversity metrics aren't enough, and you're not doing enough. And so then the question becomes, what am I going to do about it? And in a similar context, I, I doubt any of us are unfamiliar with the way Amazon treats its warehouse workers. Uh, but I can't, be, I can't even count how many times I've ordered stuff off of Amazon in 2020. You know, I, I still continue to do it. And so my question for everyone is, not necessarily particular to ourselves, but you know, projecting to um, the country, what do we think if that if that kind of information is shared and it and it's not up to snuff, are we really going to do anything about it? You know, let's say Harvard posted terrible diversity metrics. Are people just going to say, ah, I don't want to go to Harvard? That reminds me of something that I read where it was an initiative or something posted this summer where somebody said, well, these um, black athletes who are bringing all this money into division one schools for sports should consider attending HBCUs because that would draw a lot of attention and a lot of money towards those schools since they would be representing their athletic teams. And that's something that I think is interesting because it, and again, I'm not very familiar with HBCUs, but that was just an initiative I saw where it's a diversity of talent away necessarily from schools like Harvard, you know, um, where like Harvard, because of the like legacy admissions, you know, the, a lot of white people went there and a lot of white people continue to go there because of their preferences towards legacy admissions. And it's like, it's culture like that, that you, that we're, 
diversity is hard to break into because of like, the, oh, I know a guy and I know a guy who knows a guy or um, my son, you know, who is also white is going to be attending Harvard. So I think that we could direct some attention away from these institutions that are very white or very homogenous in nature, you know, because Harvard is also very affluent usually, or the people that go there. Um, and I think we could direct some of the attention away and into other schools and promoting other schools that are have stronger diversity initiatives. And I also think it might be a good idea, like every time like a ceiling exists, there's people who are driven enough to try to break it and we should be providing more opportunities for them as well. Um, because a lot, we have this kind of false meritocracy in the United States where like we think everything is based on merit and then it's really not because it's all based on like privileges for the most part, or it's all based on very unique circumstances is how I view it. And I think we need to find a way to take that idea away, like a, away, if that makes sense. Um, the idea that like, well, the board is all white because they were the best people for the job, you know? And is that really true? And the, like, I think we're moving forward in steps just as a country to dismantling the idea of meritocracy before, even when I was in like high school, people didn't know the word privilege. People had never considered that idea before. It was all like, well, I worked very hard to get where I am today. And now it's at least something everybody knows and understands, even if they only, even if they don't agree with it, they, the word has become part of verbiage. And uh, I'm not a psychologist, but in part, like word become, a word becoming part of people's lexicon starts to push that train of thought. And that can get kind of into what we have all been talking about, which is the changing culture is ultimately what we want to do. And if we can push these words into people's lexicons, all of a sudden people are thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, people are thinking about privilege. People are thinking about these things more deeply than they were before. And I think it's a slow cultural change, but it's possible. And I think we're headed in that direction, even if we're doing it slowly. I agree with everything Leanne said, and it was beautifully said, but, I just want to correct something about what I said about the NFL. So I just looked it up um, in real time and Congress actually did an investigation into this concept of paid patriotism. And back in 2016, they put a stop to military sponsorships. So it did exist for a while. And then now it, it stopped apparently in 2016. So I just want to make sure that's on the record. So I'm not spreading false information. Um, but that was because of a congressional investigation, interestingly enough. Leanne, I think your point ties into what Olivia was saying about deconstructing whiteness and um, for listeners, you can't see, I resemble Casper in my whiteness, so I don't really quite fully get what deconstructing whiteness uh, might mean. But I, I do think that what Leanne was saying takes um, Olivia's comment to a very practical sense in terms of if you're in a boardroom, let's say, and you are thinking about how are, uh, you know, how are we looking at our, how are we holding up a mirror to ourselves and determining whether or not we truly deserve to be here? I think that, you know, to Olivia's point, uh, sorry, to Leanne's point, if these people are saying, well, I worked hard, like, I don't think that they didn't. I, I don't think that anyone would 
necessarily challenge them and say, no, you, you're, you're lazy and you were just plopped in here from nepotism. They may have worked hard, but there was, uh, you know, if you think about it in terms of like a track, they started at half a lap ahead. Uh, and I think that that might be the difference. And I think that that awareness, uh, as, as Leanne uh, eloquently said, goes towards what Olivia was talking about in terms of de deconstructing that whiteness. Or maybe I'm, I'm totally misinterpreting what you were saying about that, um, Olivia. No, yeah, I think that is a great example of of what I'm talking about and how the culture has to shift, right? If Harvard exhibits these terrible statistics, and I mean, most institutions actually have exhibited terrible institutions. Uh, I mean, sorry, terrible statistics about diversity in terms of it's just, it's not enough. Um, but we can have to change what we hold as valuable. I think diversity can can change our value system. Um, and so Harvard no longer becomes the gold standard because we have different values as a society of what we hold as sacred. And that doesn't mean everyone's gonna get on board or that we're all gonna do it perfectly. I've also continued to order things off of Amazon. I've continued to participate on Facebook, knowing the reality of what's happening in these institutions, but yes, our consciousness is shifting as Leanne said, and that is an important step as we continue to move towards changing our value system, right? We have to deconstruct and reconstruct new things. If Facebook's no longer gonna be the thing or if Amazon's no longer gonna be the thing, you know, we have to reorganize our lives and that takes time. We have to be willing to do it, but definitely um, I think we can, and there definitely is a culture, sh a consciousness shift. So I hope, and even if there's not, um, I'm an abolitionist. So um, even if there's not, we're gonna get there. I'm confident about it. I appreciate your optimism. And I, I think there's a good example of what you were talking about in terms of a consciousness shift. Let me make sure I get his name right. Alexis Ohanian, I hope I'm saying that last name right. He you mean Mr. On... Serena Williams? Is he his husband? I thought it was a different guy. Oh that no, is his... that is Mr. Serena Williams. Okay. I, I knew that she was married to the founder of Reddit, but I, I thought it might have been someone different. So Mr. Serena Williams mm -hmm. um, stepped down from the Reddit board to make space for uh, a black person to be on the board. He specifically, when he stepped down, he said, replace me with a black person. Uh, and I think that's tough for a lot of uh, white people to think about. And I think that there's a, um, to Olivia's point about shifting your consciousness, there's this idea of, I worked hard, I made it to the top. Why would I leave? Like, I, I, I deserve to be here because I worked hard. And this is what I wanted. Why should I just give it up? Um, and I think that there is a there to Olivia's point, I think that there is a, a necessary consciousness shift to think about. But do I need this? You know, no one's saying that Alexis Ohanian didn't work hard. He started Reddit from nothing. And now it is both, you know, a positive environment for people and encouraging each other and a cesspool of garbage. <laughs> but, you know, he, he deserved it in a way that he worked hard, but is that what he needs? And I think it, it, it's a sh it, that consciousness shift, that's a very complex conversation that could spiral in all kinds of directions. But I, I think you're absolutely right that there's this necessary rethinking of what do I need? What, what, what do I need based on what I have earned? And I think that that's a, that's a very long process. Yeah. And, and going back to 
what Leanne said about meritocracy and um, just bringing some self-awareness into it. Um, even at the small scale of our podcast, it was started by uh, three white libertarian dudes. And it has evolved into, in three years, I think, one of the more diverse organizations at the law school. Um, and that wasn't because Matt and I, full disclosure, we selected this current board based on auditions. And it's we had no um, intention as far as like, we have to have a diverse board. We said, first, let's just see who, who, who works, what sounds good, what ideas we like. And we ended up having like a really interesting and diverse board. And that was a really natural progression. And it was based on merit. It was based on who we thought um, worked the best for this format. And, and it naturally was diverse. So I think that we are a good example of how picking the best people can lead to a diverse experience. To your point, Radhika, though, I wonder if it was naturally diverse because both you and Matt already exist with an intention to be able to see beyond what is absolutely the norm of whiteness, you know? So it's like, I like these ideas and a lot of our ideas, I, I imagine, weren't necessarily couched in like, you know, conservative, libertarian. They were, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I want to give credit also to to y'all, to the people who you are and not allow other folks to think like, oh, it's going to just naturally happen. Um, it's not going to naturally happen if you don't have folks who have an intention in the world to live a certain way. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to every every single level of everything. As long as there's like representation up top, I think it's really possible to diversify. Tri Let's call it trickle down diversity. How about that? Because um, now next year for the next board, it's going to be you four that are selecting it. Maybe we haven't had that conversation yet. Sorry, not putting anyone on blast or anything. No one's obligated to do anything. But if like, you know, the four of you are the ones making the decision, then you will also have that idea in mind and it'll carry on that way. So uh, let's make trickle down diversity a thing. Well, I, I appreciate and thank you for the, for the kudos, Olivia. We have another topic to shift to, but on the topic of institutional diversity, most places, be they schools or employers will um, in their application ask you to check a box. Um, and I think you know, we've talked about how that can be for some people that is, you know, um, a, a reasonable barometer or, or metric. And for others, it's o o okay, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking for uh, something more than that. Uh, and so, um, Olivia, you talked about, you know, us, we, how Radhika and I cultivated a diverse board and, and I specifically looked for someone with a different perspective and you were one of those people. Uh, and because you talked about in your, I remember your application, you said you wanted to, to work on um, legal imagination and rethinking things. Uh, and I know that your number of your episodes this semester have touched on that. So in that vein, I wanted to rethink a, a, ap the application process as it relates to diversity. And I had the idea of rather than checking boxes that every applicant had to submit, be it to a school or an employer, a diversity statement um, that would be separate from your personal statement or cover letter. And this simply addressed how the applicant's background and experiences would contribute 
to the diversity of the organization? And would that create more work for someone to, to read and go through? Yes. But from my perspective, that would go a lot further than uh, simply checking boxes because a person in their statement can certainly mention, I identify as blank um, and thereby accomplish the box checking thing, but then also have the opportunity to expand on something. You know, I like, and I'll talk about me again. I am a sensitive person because I was bullied a lot as a kid. I lived abroad twice and had a microscopic experience of what it's like to feel as an other. I taught uh, in an, uh, school in Baltimore and was uh, the only white teacher with an all black class. So those are, those are diverse experiences. Those are things that exposed me to uh, a lot of different things that had I simply stayed on my South Shore Long Island bubble, I would never have experienced. Um, so if I were writing my own statement, those are the things that I would talk about as far as contributing to the diversity of whatever institution that I wish to join. And I'm curious to get you know everyone's thoughts. What do you think about the idea of justifying your admission or your uh, employment based on what you feel that you can contribute uh, from, from a diversity perspective? I've actually been thinking about this as Loyola has changed their mission statement to be reflective of their anti-racist values and ideas. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be wild if it was not only required maybe a diversity statement of some sort, but how are you committed to being an anti-racist lawyer as a question as well to bolster and really give meat to this idea about diversity, right? And obviously, I guess not everyone is going to have the experiences, the education, or even the words to be able to express what it means to be an anti-racist person, depending on where you grew up, right? Sometimes you come to higher education and that is your first opportunity to be exposed to a new world, et cetera. Um, but I think all that to say, Matt, I think that is something that I would welcome as well as probably still have the boxes to check just because I know as our society currently exists, it might, we might not, an applicant might not get to the point where their diversity statement is read based off of other boxes or things that have to be checked or et cetera, whatnot. I imagine also some people may push back and say, well, I grew up in this very homogeneous town with limited resources and didn't have an opportunity to have other experiences or I can't think, you know, and, and I think that's a valid argument. And I, I would push back on that argument and say, for your example, like I was bullied, ask people to really dig down deep and to think about um, their social location in a myriad of different ways and how that's impacted them and, and how they wanna bring that to an institution. So I think I'd all, all be for a diversity statement as a part of the application process. I don't know what other folks think about that. I think it goes um, a lot to establishing this culture of diverse opinions. You know, eventually diversity is not going to be an initiative. It's just going to be a thing that exists in the world. And I think that having people consider what they can bring to the table in terms of differences of opinion, differences of experience is a good way to do it. And it's not necessarily like, you know, like identity formed. It's, it's about your experiences just as an individual and what you can talk about. So it's, I think that's kind of what we do here at PIF 
and I'm biased because of course I was a facilitator, but part of PIF is not necessarily talking ne about racial diversity, even though it is, it's talking about, it's forcing first year students to consider their identities and consider what they're bringing to law school and what they're bringing to the legal profession. And I think just even if you don't feel diverse or look diverse or are diverse necessarily in quotes, considering what your experiences and identity are is always a good thing. And that's why I think diversity statements are good because it's just another way for everybody to consider like their background and other people's background. Because as soon as you think about your own background, you are necessarily thinking about other people's background and how they're different. Because we are taught all from a young age that you know, everybody is unique and everybody has different experiences. And as soon as you start to think about your own, you consider the experiences of others usually anyway. And so I think that that's a good idea just because um, it allows for more introspection. And I'm always here for more introspection. Critical thinking and introspection. Something yes, here, here. Definitely for need more of in our country. I mean, this conversation just reminded me of the law school application process. Um, I'm gonna. I was gonna ask you guys, like, um, when you were applying for law school, do you remember the diversity statement? I remember it as being optional. So I used the LSAC website where you could apply to like a ton of law schools all at once. And um, personal statement, every single school required one of those. All the schools said that you have the option to provide a diversity statement. So I wrote one and I submitted it with all my applications. So I was going to ask you guys, um, did any of you all do diversity statements? And I'm actually more curious about Matt, Emmett, and Lenny, if you guys wrote any type of diversity statement. And I personally think it should go from an option to a requirement um, so that people like Matt, Emma, and Lenny reflect more on those things during the law school application process. I'm not saying you guys did not, but um, basically so that white guys can reflect on diversity is what I'm saying. Well, I did not, um, but I, I'm definitely a fan of it now that we've been talking about it. I think it gives people like me, Matt, and Lenny a chance to think critically about what we add to a group when we otherwise would just sort of steer clear of the conversation. So I think it's definitely important to require that going forward. Honestly, I had forgotten that those were there until you brought it up, Radhika. Like, so my, my idea of, of a mandatory diversity statement was not based on the existing one and making it mandatory. I forgot that it was there. And now that you, now that you bring it up, I didn't write one and I felt as if they weren't meant for me. You know, I, if I remember the directions they, we're saying include a diversity statement as a member of diverse group. And the tacit implication is straight white men do not include that. And, and historically, of course, that's true. Um, but then it also does limit my ability to think critically, you know, which we've all just touched on. And, and I think that that's very important. Um, I do think that making it mandatory and it shifting the language of the instructions to say rather than, um, tell us you know how you what group you identify with just simply make it be a bit more abstract uh, and say you know what do you what do you bring to the table from you know like you do in a cover letter for a job or a personal statement for a school they're asking what do you bring to the table but in this sense what do you bring to the table to contribute to round out the backgrounds and experiences and ideas of the people that we already have 
All right, guys, we've already had like such an amazing, interesting conversation about diversity and we've barely scratched the surface. Um, We're going to close this episode out, but definitely continue our conversation. So look out for our next conversation about diversity. That's all from us here at The Podkit. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.